can truly never become discouraged. Spiritual people can never become discouraged. They can never be cast down. And by being cast down, that means if it happens to them, they're discouraged, they're cast down, they're unspiritual. For if we're well grounded in Scripture, it is very easy for us to be overwhelmed and confused and even more discouraged by such a teaching. This teaching does seem logical. It makes logical sense to me. If the gospel saves us, it must save us from discouragement as well. It also appears to be wonderfully spiritual. After all, are we not more than conquerors through Him that loved us? But this is not biblical logic, and this is not true spirituality. The gospel saves us from death, but not removing death from us, but helping us to face it in the power of Christ's victory to overcome sin. So too with sin. And similarly with discouragement, faith in Christ does not remove the causes of discouragement in our life. Rather, it enables us to overcome it. We may experience discouragement, but we will never be defeated by it. Not in Christ. And nor is this biblical spirituality. It is a false super-spirituality that ignores or denies the reality of our humanity. We are humans. We live in a frail flesh and blood, in, in frail flesh and blood, and in a fallen world which John says lies in the power of the evil one, in 1 John 5:19. So there is much to discourage. Much. And Jesus felt that too. To be free from the possibility of discouragement would be more spiritual than Jesus. And therefore, that makes this truly not spiritual at all. And Psalm 42, as you turn there, teaches us the biblical approach to discouragement. We feel it. We recognize it for what it is. We analyze the reason for its presence. And so in Psalm 42, hear the word of the Lord. As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? These things I remember, and I pour out my soul within me, for I used to go along with throng and lead them in procession, to the house of God with the voice of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude-keeping festival. Verse 5, Why are you in despair, O my soul? 
Why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him for the help of His presence. O my God, my soul is in despair within me. Therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan into the peaks of Hermon, from the Mount Mizar, deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. The Lord will command His loving kindness in the daytime, and His song will be with me in the night. A prayer of God, of my, a prayer to God, the God of my life. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? As a, sh- as a shattering of my bones, my adversaries revile me. While they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall praise Him, the help of my countenance and my God. Now turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And in this passage, we will find our text for today. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning in verse 12. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 through 24. But we request of you, brethren that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live at peace with one another. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from that which is evil. And then this is our text. Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you entirely. May your spirit and soul and body be preserved, complete, without blame at His coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. For faithful is He who calls you, and also will bring it to pass. For as the grass withers and the flowers fade, the Word of God stands forever. May God add His blessings to the reading of the Word. You have a piece of paper. I want you to write down four words. The first word is this, distraction, distraction. I want you to understand something. I want to tell you a little secret out of the experience of the Christian life that some of you know and some of you are learning. The devil does not come to seek us out to destroy us. He comes to distract us. Every one of us walks a tightrope in this world. 
And if you've ever watched a person walk across a tightrope, you will notice one thing about them. They are completely undistracted with the task at hand. I remember that just before September 11, 2001, a man crossed a high wire between the Twin Towers. It was an amazing feat to watch, except I couldn't watch it. It was amazing, and he did it. But if he had become distracted, he would have died. All too often in our life is a difference between one side is being spiritually empowered and the other side being spiritually inspired. We have to hold things in balance as we walk. But distraction is something that I recognize as a shepherd whose job is not just to feed you, but also to tend to your need. And I can tell you without hesitation, I can tell you are distracted. I can tell. You're distracted by what you're seeing happening in the world. You are distracted by what you see that's happening in your life. You're distracted by the things that are beyond your control, and then you're distracted by the mistakes you've made, and the chickens have come home to roost. I can see it, because I can see it in me. So you've written down the word distraction. Let me give you a definition for it. It is a thing that prevents one from giving full attention to something else. Distraction is the thing that prevents one from giving full attention to something else. So I want you to write out a question. What is distracting you? You're not going to give this to me. This is for you before God. What is distracting you? What, is, what, is, what are the distractions in your life? Write them down. Number two, distraction leads to this. Discouragement. Write down discouragement. Discouragement defined as the loss of confidence or enthusiasm. The loss of confidence or enthusiasm. Brothers and sisters, what is discouraging you? I mean, I don't ever imagine... I'm talking about the thing you'd never tell anybody. What is discouraging you? What, what is casting you down? What is it? What is, what is it that's beyond your control that's got you discouraged? Number three, you have distraction, then comes discouragement, then will come doubt. Doubt. Doubt is simply this. Uncertainty or the lack of conviction. The lack of conviction. What are you doubting? 
What are you doubting? These are, this, this, listen, this isn't to your mind. This isn't to your hands. This is to your heart. If you're honest with these things, then you will receive the answer and the solution to this with great joy if you will deal with it honestly. And the last one is despair. Despair. Despair means anguish. Defeated. Hopeless. And gloom. Some would say that is not something a Christian can experience. We learn about it from the Apostle Paul who said despairing even unto death. What is it in your life that's brought you to this place? You'll never tell anyone. You'll never ever tell. The one that can be read like a book more than anyone in this room is the one who reads books more than anyone in this room. Me. I mean, I just, yeah, I mean, you can read me like a book. There's an absolutely nothing wrong this morning. I am just absolutely straight up serious like going into surgery. What is it that has brought you to a place of despair? Well, I want you to notice something. These are human emotions and distractions and discouragement and doubt and despair can be dealt with but never abolished. You will face it all of your life because to do that is to be human. Even Jesus in the garden was over-vexed by some kind of something that He bled drops of blood, sweat like blood. So I want you to write this down. Here it is. God is the ultimate source of peace and confidence. That's what verses 23 and 24 mean. Because verses 23 and 24 here of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 is based on all that he has said thus far. And he reaches the conclusion and the main points of the entire book of 1 Thessalonians in verses 12 through 22. There is the Reader Digest version. It is the summary of the book. If you look at your Bibles, it may have even a heading there that says Christian confidence or Christian conduct. Christian conduct, beginning in verse 12, all the way to the end. So he gives this restatement. In fact, it also functions as the conclusion of chapters 4 and 5. And of course, the way that he ends it, if you look at verse 28, he says, And the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Grace be with you. So first of all, you have this list that I have given you. And I ask you, as your pastor, please take some time and answer the questions today. Make this day holy. 
and do it. Bring it to the page where you can see it. Now, I'm going to tell you what to do with it for the rest of the morning. Trusting you to do as this passage says in verse 12, listen to those who have been given as authorities over you. <laughs> so let me give you the beautiful thing of this message. Number one, it's an amazing point. I don't know if you'll be able to write it all down. Point number one, peace. That's it, peace. In verse 23, there is the beginning of a prayer. Some of them call it a wish prayer. Some of the commentators call it a wish prayer. That doesn't really communicate in our English today, but it's English that was written in the 20th century. But it's a wish prayer. It's His prayer. And the prayer is expressed and lifted up to God that says this. Look at your text. May God Himself... The God of peace sanctify you through and through. Sanctify you through and through. Now I want you to notice something. First of all in the text, as you look at it in verse 23, how does it describe God? The God of peace. Amen? So what your Bible says? The God of peace. Let me show you some things. The word, this, this term, God of peace, appears elsewhere in the Apostles' writing. It appears in Romans and Philippians, as well as here in 1 Thessalonians. It also appears in Hebrews 13.20. But the New Testament also describes God another way. Not just the God of peace, but also the God of love and peace. That's in 2 Corinthians 13.11. The God of love and peace. It's not only the God of peace and the God of love and peace, but in 2 Thessalonians 3.16, He's called the Lord of peace. The Lord of peace. Kurios. Kurios, Lord. Tes Irene. Irene is the Greek word. Irene is the Greek word for peace. It means to be interwoven. Peace. The Lord of peace. And similarly, in Romans 15, 13, He's called the God of hope. The God of hope. So you have the God of peace, the God of love and peace, the Lord of peace, the God of hope. hope. But in 1 Corinthians 1433, it says this. Listen, God is not the God of disorder, but of peace. God is not the God of disorder, but of peace. So listen, you have the God of peace, the God of love of peace, the Lord of peace, the God of hope, the God that is not of disorder but of peace. What does this tell us? Listen to me. The entire gospel message, which is the proclamation of the person and work 
of the Lord Jesus Christ, what He did, and how we may obtain its benefits can be boiled down to one word, peace. Look over here at chapter 1, verse 1. To the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and and peace. Brothers and sisters, hear me in this context of this book and where he is speaking of the God of peace in this passage the context tells us this, that it is all, peace is almost synonymous with Christian salvation. With Christian salvation. If you want to read more about that, Acts 10.36, Romans 2.10, Ephesians 6.15. Some authors have suggested that the appeal to the God of peace is the counterpoint to the discord which existed amongst the Thessalonians. They were a church that was suffering persecution, physical persecution. But the focus of verse 23 is on the complete sanctification of the believer in anticipation of the coming of the Lord. Notice, the God of His salvation or peace is the one who will carry out the work. Peace. Who carries out the peace? God does, not you, not me. And notice the apostle's desire. He says that God will sanctify you through and through. Through and through. Now we've already noted that the... If you look at chapter 4, go over here because I haven't noted it, so I'll just have you note it now. Chapter 4, verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Okay? Verse 4 that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Verse 7 and 8, For God has not called us to the purpose of impurity, but to sanctification, so that we reject this. As, so he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. He is speaking here of this idea of sanctification. And it, and it is done, listen to me, it is done with the anticipation of the coming of the Lord Jesus. Now, this is important you understand this. This word here of the coming of the Lord that's mentioned in this passage is the word parousia. It is in no place has anything to do with the apocalypton, the carrying away. This is the parousia. This is, it's over. This is the second coming of Jesus Christ does not appear in the Revelation, but it appears all throughout the New Testament, the Perusia. This is, this is the great getting up morning, is what this is. This is the second coming of the Lord. He came the first time as a lamb. He will come the next time as the king. And he will be attended by his retinue. He will be attended by the angels and the saints that are with him. And so he says to be sanctified through and through entirely. It means to be entirely done all the way through. It's like a pancake. You cook it all the way through. 
in its entirety. To reach the end of the goal is the idea. So here's the idea. The fulfillment of all that He called you to is that you be prepared to meet Him when He comes. Through and through. The end all of end all. And He explains this in precise terms when He says that you be blameless. That you be blameless when He comes. And that is you be blameless in your moral condition. And I'm going to speak about this in a moment at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That you be blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Since they have patterned their lives according to the will of God, there needs to be confidence that God's work transcends the believer's own moral weaknesses which he and his associates had so recently become aware of in, chapter, in, in verse 24 here. Because he says, He who calls you is faithful and he will do it. He knows they're struggling. He knows they're being persecuted. I mean, they're taking their kids from their homes. They're under a great deal of persecution. We know nothing of this. Air conditioner goes out, we're being persecuted by the devil. Listen, if it comes to that and stealing my kids, devil, do your worst. Turn the air conditioner off. These people are suffering. And Paul said, remember, the one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. You say, well, what's that have to do with peace? Because you just told me this Bible passage says I've got to be morally blameless. <laughs> well, notice the text. Look what it says. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want you to understand this. I'm not going to discuss the, bi the bichotomy of a man. He is physically a body, and then he has his spiritual essence, which is made up of one thing with two views, his soul and his spirit. That's one essence with two views. The word here is that your whole being, holoclaron, you hear that word whole in it, that we get our English word, holoclaron. It's an adjective that says your whole being, that, that everything that is written here when it talks about your body, soul, and your spirit is that you're complete, it's entire. It's the same meaning as entirely. Entirely complete, entirely blameless. So he speaks of this morality. He speaks of moral health. We don't talk a lot about moral health. We talk about emotional health, we talk about physical health, we talk about spiritual health. Have you ever thought about moral health? What is moral health? Moral health deals in the area of self-esteem, in the area of personal autonomy, uh, self-actualization, uh, social coping, social coping, a realistic cog. Mission. What? Well, I'm even lost listening to all of that. Well, let me give you what it looks like instead of how it's defined as. When he says this, you be morally healthy through entirety, through the entirety of your person, entirely. Here's what that would look like. You're not going to be able to write it down because I'm going to go too fast. Always tell the truth. Don't destroy property. 
Have courage. Keep your promises. Don't cheat. Treat others the way you want to be treated. Don't judge. Be dependable. Be forgiving. Have integrity. Take responsibility for your own actions. Have patience and be loyal. Have respect for yourself and above all for others. Be tolerant of differences. Seek justice. Have humility. Be generous. You know what I can find in that? I can find the first four commandments over and over and over again. And then I can find the fifth through the tenth over and over again. And I can also find the four cardinal virtues. I can find wisdom in there and, and I can find uh, bravery in there and temperance and justice in there. So here is what is taking place in regards to this peace. He tells them this so that the Thessalonians may understand that the sanctification, embrace, this sanctification, embraces their whole being and Paul, and Paul specifies its scope, including the anthropological terms of your spirit, your soul, and your body. What is he doing? He is telling them what they are to be. And the peace that comes from it is the fact that they can't do it. The peace of this truth is that they can't do it. God has commanded it, but they can't do it. That's what verse 24 is all about. He who calls you is faithful and He will do it. Jesus, on the other hand, spoke of humans as souls and bodies. But listen to how Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 7.34. He says we're body and spirits. And in other occasions, we're called heart, soul, mind, and strength. We have all of these things in here. But what I want you to understand is, it, is, is that this passage is covering all aspects of your human nature. That's why it's important for you to go home and answer the questions I have asked you from the four D words. Because in that it will cover all of your nature. All aspects of your nature. And so Paul's prayer is this. Look what, his, look what he prays. Notice. And now. May the God of peace Himself sanctify you entirely. Notice He doesn't tell them to do it. He doesn't say, you know what, you need to straighten up. You need to fly right. You need to get this and you need to get this straightened out in your life. You just need to S-T-O-P, new word, I-T. It's not Yiddish. It's just stop it. That's not what He says. He says, may the God of peace Himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit, soul, and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that preserved complete, com complete is the idea of perfect morality. But here's the problem. Look at me and listen. I fear most of us have grown up hearing so much in the church, not wrongly, but unbalancedly, 
just about the doctrine of justification. The doctrine of justification tells us who we, where we stand in relationship to Jesus Christ. But where I stand is not the same thing as how I thrive in it. And the, one of the reasons that I believe so many are so weak today is because they've never been taught sanctification. The Bible says before Christ, before God, we are completely sanctified, but before mankind, we are in the process of sanctification. What is sanctification? Sanctification is the process by which I am built up in Jesus Christ. And sanctification is not based upon how much knowledge you have. It's based on how much experience you have standing. That's why it's very wrong, I'm sorry to say, that whenever you just, you know, something doesn't go your way, you ask for an immediate deliverance. Because in the last 50 years, there have been those that have taught that if that happens, you're being punished. Let me tell you something. I want you to write this down. There is a little bit of doctrine in this message. God does not punish His children. His children, the one whom He has called, His elect, Jesus Christ bore their punishment. And what I mean by punishment... Punishment means to be treated positively with pain for the purpose of retribution and payment. That's, that's punishment. But God does chastise His children. And chastisement is where God brings about on those whom He loves that which will get their attention to modify where they are looking and what they are trusting in. That's chastisement. You, you would do well to never forget that again. On the basis of that alone has come whole denominations and false teaching. God does not punish His children. He chastises them. And He always chastises them for good. Punishment is never for good. Punishment is for pain. It's for retribution. And if you would say, God, why are you punishing me with this or that? That you know, I hope He tells you, call James on the phone if he doesn't decide to give you an answer. You'll feel like you were punished. He chastises. He who began the good work in you is faithful to complete it unto the day of the Lord, Philippians 1 verse 6, which is, by the way, what he is speaking of here, the day of the Lord, the second coming. And so Paul pray, prays here, he says, that God would sanctify the Thessalonians so that their whole being, everything that, would, that were them as humans would be kept blaming at the coming of Jesus Christ. And this is in the context of tremendous civil uprest and suffering. How many of you have a Matthew Henry commentary at home? You know what I'm talking about, a Matthew Henry? Matthew Henry was a Puritan Baptist. Do you know he never got to preach in a church? Ever because of the uh, act of conformity and six, I believe, or uniformity in 1633 in England, 
he was ejected because he believed that there was only one way to worship God and that it was putting the Scripture above everything as revealed in the Scripture. And Matthew Henry the Great, and not only that, but that act said you could not be within five miles of a city. So Matthew Henry wrote his commentary that all of us love devotionally. It's not an exegetical commentary. It's not a scholarly commentary. It's a devotional commentary. It's one that speaks to your heart in a barn. Never, got, never had the privilege to preach in a church. And I think about us here. Journey Church has never had the privilege to meet in a church building either. But churches don't need buildings. Churches are churches. And wherever they meet, they're the church inside of a building. So I want you to get this. One of the most devoted men of God that has impacted people suffered. Martin Luther and the writing of the, of the Bible into the common language, they were hunting him down to kill him. He suffered. John the Baptist, the greatest man to ever been born of a woman, that's the valedictory that Jesus Christ gave, suffered. He didn't make his decision on whether he should tell what was right or wrong to Herod and what he was doing with his brother's wife. He didn't make the decision and said, you know, this is going to end my ministry if I tell the truth. He said, right is right and wrong is wrong and right is always good. And he told Herod the truth and Herod locked him up and prepared him. And of course, he lost his head over the whole deal. Jesus Christ did nothing wrong. Nothing at all. And he said he didn't even have a place to lay his head. And went to the cross allowed Himself to be crucified by the very people that He created before the foundations of the world so that He might save some. But not just save them, sanctify them. And so I want you to write this down. If all you do is live on the doctrine of justification, which is the doctrine of evangelism, I want you to remember something. God did not call Christians to be starving sheep. One of the reasons I know that all of us have not probably, as I know you, I think, have not been faithfully taught sanctification is because I hear too often the wrestling against the preaching of the whole counsel of God instead of just the few favorite passages of God. So you read John 3.16, go look at verse 13 and go look at verse 18. You will see it totally different. Evangelicals in America believe that if we just get everybody saved, then everything's going to work out. The problem is getting everybody saved is not our business. Our business is to preach the whole counsel of God and to tend to the flock, period. You take that out into your society. Let them see it in your life. Use words if necessary. Let them see the sanctifying work. And one of the ways they can see it is that when you sit down at the Whataburger and everybody's sitting there bashing the president or bashing this or bashing that, you can just sit there and smile 
and have hope. So I'm going to tell you something. The worst they can do is put us to death. And when they lay me out in that box, I'm going to tell you there's one thing you all can say about that. James Egan finally died to his sin. What a glorious thought. Oh, he fought it. But he finally died to it. Died to sin. So it's like, well, Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sin and, and he died for us. Then why do believers have to die? I'll tell you why they have to die. The punishment's been paid. So why do we die? And fulfillment. It's a grace. Because when we die, so does our sin. It's dead forever. And so there's peace. Where does this peace come from? God has put through inspired text to tell you it comes from the God of peace Himself. And I've already shown you that God is not a God of disorder. So when you look at what's happening in America, you look at what's happening in Canada, you look at what happened in, in Botswana, or you go look at what's happened in Berserkistan, or wherever a stand you want to go look, I'm just going to ask you a question. Are you distracted by that? Because God is not a God of disorder. He's a God of love. He's a God of peace. He's the Lord of hope. That's what separates the believers that's what separates the sheep from the goat. Where they look, how they sound, how they group together. Did you know goats don't flock together like sheep? Goats are all about being alone. They're all about being separated. That's the work of a goat. Goat's tail goes up like this. Sheep's tail goes down. Goats eat with their heads up. Sheep eat with their heads down. Go, sheep go bah, and goats go meh. When you slaughter a sheep, it says nothing. When you slaughter a goat, it says no. And so this is a marvelous piece. And then notice the confidence. Number two, confidence. Confidence. Now let me tell you why this passage means so much to me. When I, I had to fire somebody at post because of immorality. And I could sing, and so I took over the choir ministry. So I had to fire the choir director. And we did a uh, marvelous musical called The Eyes of Faith that my family still can sing today. And people mention... And uh, I, I did that piece, and after we did it, we did four concerts for the community. And when it was done, we had a celebration together, and the choir people got me this beautiful uh, bass relief. It's hanging in my office over here. No, it's hanging, I don't know, it's hanging somewhere. And it says, he who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. It literally has been the verse of my whole ministry. And the longer I go, the more it means something to me. But I want you to notice this. 
the one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. What God began in the election and calling that is found here in 1 Thessalonians, go to chapter 1, watch this. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, go to verse 4, look what happens here. Knowing, brethren, beloved of God, beloved by God, his choice of you. Greek word is electos. Chapter 2, verse 12, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you, electos, you into his own kingdom and glory. Go over here to chapter 4, verse 7. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. He's called us for that. You can go over and see more of it in 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14. So I want you to understand this. Just as I have shown you the last four weeks about the Ten Commandments being specifically given to the called of God, they are for His people. And He is their personal triune God. And they have it because of His covenant He has made. And they have that and we have it. What you have here is you see this... This continues. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. What did he call us to? He did not call us to starvation. He did not call us to abnormal suffering. He did not call us to a life of misery. He did not call us to despair. He did not call us to distraction, to discouragement and doubt. He called us to peace. And now he tells us the confidence that we have in this. And this is where the rubber hits the road for you. It may be or it may not be the reason that I sense you're distracted. But are you the called? Because the Bible says here, the one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. It's not that you're faithful and will do it. It's the one who calls you is faithful and will do it. Now who is the one he's talking about? The God of peace. So watch this. In other words, he will complete at the time of his coming of Jesus Christ. Write down Romans 8 verse 30. Romans 8, verse 30. I'm going to read it to you. It says this, And these whom He predestined, He called. These whom He called, He justified. Those whom He justified, He glorified. Do you know what took place between the justification and the glorification? The sanctification. Rick, there it is. The sanctification. And it starts in Philippians 1, 6. He who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it. He began it. I didn't begin it. He began it. And so this same overflowing confidence is at work of God being carried out in the believer. Listen, where you are now, whatever you're facing, whether it's the distraction, the discouragement, the doubt and despair, you have to deal with it. But you have to deal with it with God. And you have to deal with it with His truth. And first of all, that means I have to be truthful. Lord, I am distracted. Lord, I am, I am discouraged. Lord, I do have doubts. You know, in fact, I doubt you. Okay, he can handle that. He can handle that. And I'm in despair. He can handle that too. But he can't handle it if you don't deal with it. And all you got to do is take it to him. 
And see, if you don't do it, then this is what you're doing. Listen to me. If you don't do this, you're breaking the first four commands, all four of them. Number one, you're not letting Him be your God. That's the first thing you're doing. You're, you, and that takes pride, so pride cometh before destruction. Number two, you're worshiping yourself, which is an idol. Number three, you're taking His name in vain because you would sit here and play when God wants you to worship Him. And number four, you're violating the Sabbath. You're not resting in Him and keeping it holy. You say, really that? Yes, really. On the authority of the Word of God, absolutely. You're, you're a lawbreaker. And God doesn't want you to be a lawbreaker. God wants you to be at peace. And what's He say here? Let me do it. Let me pray. Paul's praying. All of this stuff he has mentioned here, let the process work. And he, he said, but listen, he's having to pray for them because they're going to have to, they need prayer. Listen, if you ever come to the place where you don't need someone's prayer, I'm going to tell you, it's probably because you're not at peace. You're not at peace with the object. You're not at peace with what you think people are seeing and what you want them to see. And, it's, and you know how you get there? It's because you get distracted. And then you get discouraged. And then you start having doubt and despair. Oh, they don't love me. They don't care. I, my problems just aren't worth their problem. Listen, we're in this together. Amen? And it's easy now because as you pray that we grow one day, it will not be as easy. Right now you have the phone number to the preacher. One day you may not. And that's only because he's ready to chunk it. I do not like the phone. I love who I talk to except the warranty people. I just gave him Bill White's phone number to call him about. He needs solar panels, new warranty, some other kind of thing. The same overflowing confidence in the work of God being carried out on believers is found in Philippians 1.6. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will, will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. The sword, listen, the source of this confidence is not only the divine initiative that we see that we can witness to in election, but it is also in the character of God. Look what he writes here. He says, the one who calls you, look what he says. He talks about the the prehistoric, literal, prehistoric, divine decree in eternity past, your election. Then he talks about the present and he says not only what he's done, but who he is. He is faithful. One of the reasons I find in my own self that I will lack peace is I forget that God is faithful. I put my faithfulness before His faithfulness. God is faithful. I will never attain the faithfulness of God, but I will give by God's, by God's strength my dead-level best to find it. And the faithfulness of God is to be understood here as this. Write this down. As surety. Surety. S-U-R-E-T-Y. That is the escrow, the down payment. You snooze, you lose. This is the surety 
This faithfulness of God is the surety. And knowing that such is the nature of God, He declares right here, He will do it. That is, the sanctification will be complete and extended to the entirety of our being. So everybody watch me. Well, look at this. You say, I'm never going to see it while I'm living. That's correct. You will not see it while you're living in this body. But the moment you die, the very moment you die, the work is finished. And you'll be able to see it on the other side. And the reason that's so magnificent is because you will be literally absent from the body, present with the Lord, without any of the sin you have carried your whole life. You will see Jesus Christ and you will not bear any load of sin. And because you are glorified in the eternal state, man can never fall again. And you will give glory. And that's the reason to have peace. Because while I'm on this earth, we're to let our little light shine. If they steal the elections, they can't steal us. If they steal our freedom, they can't steal us. The church has thrived under every regime, under every kind. Look, the church in Russia... uh, The Soviet Union thrived when the only news sources were Investia and Pravda. It thrived. I remember the Texas Baptist men when I was in high school going to Moscow, Russia before um, uh, Mikhail Gorbachev became the uh, uh, boss singing in Moscow in Red Square. 400 Texas Baptist men. One of them was our music minister. It was amazing to hear that. You cannot stamp it out. But distraction will just stamp it out in you. You see, what is beyond you, you cannot control. And that's what distracts us. And the Bible says we haven't been given outside control. We have been given self-control. That is the difference between my beautiful dogs and me. They have no self-control. I do. They're beasts. I'm just a brute. I have self-control. I have a spirit of self-control. And in that passage of Scripture it says, You have not been given a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power and of self-control. Where there is fear, it's because there is a lack of peace and confidence. So what's distracting you? To bring about fear. What is discouraging you? What is raising up in your you doubt? It's like, is God going to take care of it or not? Is God going to take care of it? I got a huge foundation crack. Another one. And I listened to it creak and crack and I went out there last night and just was literally overwhelmed by it. There's no way to do that, fix that right now. There's no way to do that. And when I got up at 4 o'clock this morning, I didn't write the sermon last night, I didn't do anything. I got up at 4 o'clock this morning, went in and set the message straight, the whole bulletin for, a feet, for a, the fifth commandment. Took my bath, shaved, put on my deodorant, went in the kitchen, drank my espresso, had my B12, and I said, forget it. 
and I went right back to bed, 5.30, and it's 6 o'clock, 6 o'clock this morning, this message found me. Because I don't have to fix it, it'll get fixed. I'm a day late, a dollar short, month behind on everything. Don't have to worry about it. It'll get fixed. Well, you'll lose your name in the process. I have no name. Just give me Jesus. Just give me Jesus. You know what my greatest fear is? That God would remove me from the pulpit. I know exactly where that comes from. Hell. You know why I know that? I can't do anything else. I just can't. I love people, but I love my sheep. And you are entitled. God sent me to you to have a shepherd that will feed you and tend to your needs. And this morning in attending to my needs, He showed me you need to tend this because the congregation will never rise above its shepherd, ever. And so let me close with some very good applications for you. Brothers and sisters, I I need to say one other thing. The goal of being kept blameless at Christ's coming is that we're able to stand blameless at the judgment. And we will be blameless. Do you know why we'll be blameless? Because we're not going to go in this body. The burial proved all that was blamable is gone. The sin is dead in the body. And here's the idea. God's preserving of the believer is not merely spiritual, but includes the resurrection body, which is part of the process of overcoming the judgment. It is not merely that the believer's spirit and soul that will be kept blameless at the end, but also the Christian's new redeemed body. You will never, ever be lost again. There's not going to be in the, in the new heaven and the earth a tree that is set up and says, the day you eat of this, it shall die. And repeat, that would be some sad karma. We will never fall again. We will never ever struggle with sin. We will never cry again. We will never ever have to see Arthur or feel him in our joints. There will be no freckles. There will be no acne. There will be no hormones. There will be no pride. It will be joyous. And so let me tell you how to handle this. You're going to go home today and you're going to deal with this. You need to. We need you to as a body. The chain is only as strong as its weakest link. God is for you in this endeavor. His peace and your confidence. So let me close with these simple things. Four more words. I gave you four to begin with. I'm going to give you four to end with. I want you to write down the word wisdom. Wisdom. Here's a definition for wisdom that is going to be perhaps unfamiliar. Wisdom means do not fear the future. Exclamation point. Do not fear the future. I want to give you just a little bit of philological insight. 
you will meet the future if God calls you to with the same weapons which you are facing this present day. And what you've just been given is the assurance of peace and confidence. And just as you can go from here today and face, and face distraction, discouragement, doubt, and even desperation with peace and confidence, whatever He calls you to, whatever He calls you to, you'll face it with the same weapon. Wisdom. No fear of the future. Why? You've been given peace and confidence. Number two, courage. Courage means fortitude in the face of danger. Courage. Courage is not the absence of fear, but found in conquering it. You are not courageous until you are found to be conquering your fear. It will take courage for you to go home with those first four words and deal with it. Say, I'm too old to deal with it. You are specifically need to go home and deal with it because you're closer to meeting him than I am. Number three, temperance. Temperance or prudence. Temperance, self-management. Here it is. Enjoy the present. Enjoy the present without anxious dependence upon the future. Without anxious dependence upon the future. In other words, temperance is not living with the hope and fear that may or may not come. It is being grateful for having what you have now. And last of all, justice. Justice. Justice is our attitude toward each other. Our kindness and our consideration. Brothers and sisters, listen to me. If it's not good for the beehive, it's not good for the bees. If it's not good for the beehive, it's not good for the bees. Years ago, after we left the first church, we, I bought a car that some of you saw and some of you didn't. It was a, truly a midlife crisis because I couldn't afford it, and I did it anyway, and, and whatever only drove it at night, which didn't matter. It had hot pipes on it, so everybody heard it. And I took Kelly to Ennis, Texas, to the Blue Bonnet Festival. It had been more productive to go to the Bluebell Festival somewhere else. But we went to the Blue Bonnet Festival, and if you can imagine all those blue bonnets there in, in, uh, in Ennis, Texas, and people got out of their cars and they would pick the blue bonnets. And that makes a lot of sense. You know, you go out and have a pretty little blue bonnet. But what if everybody that came through Ennis, Texas on I-45 I went through there and everyone stopped and picked the blue bonnets? Then what would happen? There would be no blue bonnets for anyone to enjoy. Brothers and sisters, let me tell you something. Justice, the attitude towards others, is why we may not exercise our own personal right to do something. Because it gives consideration to someone else. It gives consideration to someone else's freedom. And so, 
as you go here today, when you finish your work, your distractions, your discouragements, your doubt and your despair, what I want you to do, having seen now what wisdom, courage, temperance and justice are, knowing that you have been equipped with peace and confidence, it's yours. You can't deny it. You just choose not to use it. I want you to then do this. Identify what you can control. And I'll just give you a real easy answer. You will only be able to control what's between your ears. Because you can't control anybody. All I hear from myriad of voices, not just here but everywhere, oh, they just want to control us. Control is a big deal. The only thing you can control is what goes on between your ears. You cannot make anybody do anything. And then do this. Once you identify what you can control, then do your best unto God to control it. Unto God. And give no more thought to what you cannot control, but leave it to prayer. Thus, may God add His blessings to this extemporaneous message.